So go ahead and turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Our focus is going to be on uh, verses 11 to 14. And my objective this morning is, is somewhat simple. It's to convince you from this passage that God's desire for you personally is that you would live an increasingly godly life. That's my goal. Is as a result of being in Titus 2 together this morning, you would leave here today thinking, wow, I need to pursue godliness more earnestly, more zealously than I've been doing. And with God's help, uh, motivated, compelled by His grace, I can do that. I want you to see from this text that it's not enough for you to sit here this morning uh, with pristine theology. Uh, confessional theology. It's not enough for you to have memorized the Westminster Confession. We love the Westminster Confession, but it's not enough to have that memorized. Uh, But God's desire for you is that the grace you have come to enjoy as a Christian, demonstrated, poured out lavishly on us through Christ, that that grace would propel you forward into a godly life. All right, that's that's my target. And you know that God has been incredibly gracious to you. You know that. If you if you don't know that, you're surrounded by people who would love to tell you about that. But God has been incredibly gracious. Even if your life has been an utter train wreck up to this moment, friends, God has been incredibly gracious to you. And that grace by God's design, is to to, um, propel you to praise Him and thank Him for His kindness to you, the overflow of His goodness, while at the same time, it's designed by God to press you into greater holiness and Christ-likeness. And Paul's argument in our text this morning, and my argument, as you'll see, is that this extraordinary grace of God is designed to compel you to live holy for Him. And my question to you is, is that true for you right now? Have you seen God's grace to you and been in awe of it? Seen the magnitude of your sin, hate it, flee, have fled from that to Christ, and now you see that God has been incredibly gracious, and you are, right now, striving with all God's help to become more and more godly. Is that true of you? Well, I hope that you will be convinced that it ought to be true of you by the end of our time in this text this morning. So I do invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Titus chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous, for good deeds. You may be seated. Well, in this passage, which is actually one long sentence, 
Paul laid the foundation for a godly life, which in a word is grace. Grace is the foundation for a godly life. And Paul, though, does not stop there. He doesn't just give the foundation for godly living. He actually lays out an argument for why Christians must live godly lives. It's a strong argument, and I want to walk you through that this morning. And he, he's arguing why the, the Christians here in Crete and why we today must bring our life increasingly in unison with our confession. Right? You have two, two theologies. You have your confessed theology, which we sing about and we love. And then you have your lived theology. Right? You really know what your true confessional theology is, not by what you say, but by how you live. Your life is the greatest argument for your theology. Right? What you believe, your theology, what you believe about God determines how you live your life. I could track you down. Uh, I'm not going to do that. But I could go with you uh, tomorrow. Uh, you guys are not in school yet. When does school start back for you guys? For high school? 23rd? Okay. Um, or homeschool. We, our church, Calvary Bible Church, we're full of homeschool uh, kids as well. So uh, I could track you at school, or I could track you at work. I could track you wherever you are. And I could make notes about what you say, what you do. And I could tell you what you believe about God. Because the way that you live, the way you respond to scenarios in your life, what you say, what you don't say, all of that is telling everyone around you what you believe about God. And Paul wants us, God wants us, to bring our confessed theology and our lived theology into greater unison. Right? That's his target. So let me give you his argument. Three arguments, and then we'll walk through these one by one. Okay, First, Paul says you must live a godly life Because your life is meant to be an affirmation of the saving grace of God. You must live a godly life because your life is meant to be an affirmation of the saving grace of God. That's in verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. Second, you must live a godly life because your life as a Christian is under the training influence of God's grace. If you are someone who knows God and you are living in God's grace and you've experienced His grace, the grace of the gospel, grace works. It operates in you. And we're going to see that in this text. It's training us. So it should be that if you are truly God's child, that your life is being increasingly trained by God's grace. And I'll show you that in the text. That's in verses 12 and 13. And then lastly, you must, Christian, live a godly life because your life is not yours. Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. That's verse 14. All right, so that's where we're headed. Three arguments, and I'm going to lay them out for you, and I want you to see it in the text itself. First, you must live godly. Because your life as a Christian is meant to be an affirmation of the saving grace of God. Let me show you where I get this, all right? 
There were at least two, give me, I'm going to give you some context here. Uh, there were at least two reasons that Paul wrote this letter to Titus. There were two things going on, at least. There were many things, but two things in Crete where, where Paul, where Titus was that motivated Paul to write. Titus had been sent by the apostle Paul to this large island in the Mediterranean to appoint elders, right? We know Titus as one of the pastoral epistles, right? First and second Timothy, Titus. Titus was there to appoint elders in a group of churches, young churches that likely were started by Paul and, and Titus as they traveled. For some reason, Paul and Titus had to leave. All right. The last, I mean, you think about the recipe here for, uh, chaos and confusion. You have Paul and Titus planning a church and then they have to quickly leave for some reason. And here are a group of young churches who are, I mean, brand new. And they're without an elder. So Titus is sent to go back and help sort of work out some of the confusion that has happened. But there were two main points of confusion. The first was this. In their absence, a group of false teachers had emerged in the church. Men who were probably uh, charismatic, not theologically, but charismatic personally. Uh, they had gifts, talents. They were persuasive. They probably had some sort of uh, respectability about them. But in, in chapter 1 in verse 10, if you flip back, we see that Paul had no uh, real mercy on them at all. Verse 10, he says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those who are of the circumcision. He called them rebellious, empty talkers and deceivers. Right? These were teachers in the church who were having influence across the island. And verse 11, they were destroying entire families. This was serious. We don't know what they were teaching, uh, but we know that Paul was greatly concerned. But it's fascinating in Titus. Paul was not primarily concerned with their theological error. You know what he was concerned with? Their lives, their lifestyles, how they were living. He was concerned at their lifestyle. Look at chapter 1 and verse 16. They profess to know God. Right? It seems like they have good theology at least. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Here they are, they're saying the right words, but their life is a wreck. Something is wrong here. Because it's easy to say, to, to speak sound theology, uh, but it's much harder to live it out. And your life is a reflection of what your true theology is. And here are these teachers, uh, and you can see, they seem to be confessing to know God, they, but they were denying Him by their lives. Right? They, they were denying the very theology they confessed by the way that they lived. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that you and I can do the same thing. You come to Redeemer Church. I go to Calvary Bible Church. Uh, people know where I go to church. Uh, people know that I'm a Christian, that, know, that you're a Christian. And there is a way that you can live your 40 hour work week. 
and, and totally discredit the saving grace of God by your life. And this was Paul's issue here. This, this was a serious danger for this young church. Right? They were seeing their leaders who had wonderful theology from the pulpit, but their lives were totally lousy. And it was misleading and confusing. And there's just something about fallen nature that allows us to, to say with our mouths this wonderful truth about God, but then our lives can be so, so far off. We can say, uh, confess the deepest theological truths, but we live with this gaping chasm between what we say and what we do. Right? We don't want to do that. This will never do. Living a life that contradicts your theology is, is, will never do for Christ. Right? He has given us everything. He gave his life for us, and we'll see why later on in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15. But he did that so that we would no longer live for ourselves. And here are these false teachers standing up, teaching, but their lives are a wreck. And Paul comes and says, Titus, you've got to go in there and essentially muzzle these teachers. You've got to silence them. Look at chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, appoint elders who will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. Right? You've got to address this. These false teachers had erected an, an insurmountable division, wall, between their theology and their life, and that had to be corrected. So Titus's mission was to go in and start telling these people, listen, you cannot live with this gap between what we say theologically and how you live. All right, that's an issue. That's issue number one. The second problem in Crete was the pressure from the godless Cretan culture. All right, this was an island in the Mediterranean. All right, just think about how island culture is. All right, it's laid back, relaxed, um, just sort of let things happen. All right, this is an island in the Mediterranean. And here it's striking. Paul gives us a little commentary on what the culture was like from their own people. Look at verse 12 in Titus 1. He says, uh, one of their own, a prophet of their own, says that Cretans are always, always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> That's quite a statement. And we actually encourage people to don't, don't say always. Right? They don't always get upset with you. That's not true. But here Paul says, they are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. That seems pretty harsh. But notice Paul's assessment in verse 13. This is true. They're right. This Cretan culture is a mess. It's totally a mess. Um, and they are evil beasts. In fact, there's a bit of irony here because it was an island. And so they were able to get rid of all the lions, bears, tigers, all that stuff. And, and Crete notoriously didn't have those kind of creatures. But in the absence of these wild animals the Cretans themselves sort of stepped up and started acting like wild animals, right? And this was the culture in Crete. And Paul says they are evil beasts. They are a people led by their instincts and pleasures. Now think about American culture, all right? 
I mean, this is where we are. We are a people led by instincts and pleasures. We are wild animals, uh, not rational anymore. We're just sort of led by our instincts, at least our culture is. He says they were evil beasts. They were also lazy gluttons, or literally, he says, lazy bellies. They're lazy bellies. These were people who lived like animals only to satisfy their appetites. Right? They lived and were led only by sensual desires. And God, in His mercy, had saved some of them. Right? Had drawn them out of that mess uh, of passion and sensuality. And He had saved some of them and they formed a church like this. But they were sitting in a culture, they were being steeped, they had been steeped in, and now they were still in a culture that had tremendous pull on them to bring them back to the old way. And some of you know that. Some of you have been saved out of that kind of lifestyle and you feel the tug back to it. Well, this is what was going on in Crete. So not only was the culture pressuring them, but their preachers were pressuring them and modeling for them by their lifestyles that you can, as long as you're saying the right thing, go out and, and live like an animal. That's fine. Just come back here and we'll teach you about grace so that you can be forgiven and you're, and, and, and you can, uh, by your abounding sin, cause God's grace to abound. Right? This is Romans 6. Paul says, should we continue in sin so that grace may, may abound? By no means. God forbid. May it never be. Now, this was a common Common theological error. Perverting God's grace into a justification for sin. We see that in our culture as well, right? And we feel that in our own hearts. I'll do this, God will forgive me. It's a perversion of God's grace. So Paul then is correcting these two errors at Crete. This is his target. And he exhorted Titus to give special attention to the area of good works among the Cretan churches. Why? Because the good works, their lives, were essentially a wreck. Now, I could say more about that, but let's move on. Paul was concerned with sound doctrine here and sound living. The theme of good works is all throughout Titus. And Paul's argument, in a nutshell, is that right theology leads to right living. All right? Right theology leads to right living. So look at chapter 2, Titus chapter 2. In verse 1, Paul exhorted Titus, but as for you. He just has sort of reprimanded the false teachers. Go appoint elders. Now, chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, Titus. But as for you, speak and teach the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Teach sound doctrine. Do you see that? Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, teach the things that are fitting with sound doctrine, or things that accord with sound doctrine. Things that complement sound doctrine. Teach the things that suit sound doctrine. Now, what are the things that accompany or accord with sound theology. Right, you've got great theology. Well, what should your life look like? This is the point here. And then look at the following verses. Verse 2. He says, older men are to be temperate, dignified, and sensible. He doesn't say older men are to believe X, Y, or Z. 
Why? Well, because he's talking about a life that accords with good theology. Do you see that? So verse 2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, etc. Verse 3, older women are to be reverent, etc. Verse 4, younger women are to love their husbands, etc. These are things that accord with sound doctrine. Verse 6, young men are to be sensible. Verse 9, slaves are to be subject to their masters. This is all behavior. All behavior. This is the kind of life that accompanies sound theology. That's Paul's point. Notice, though, I want you to see this is profound. Notice why Christians are to live this way. Look at verse 3. Older women are to be reverent. Now verse 4, to encourage the young women to love their families. Now into verse 5, so that, here's the purpose statement. Why live this way? so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Do you see that? If these women do not live this way, the word of God will be dishonored. Look at verse 6. Young men are to be sensible. Verse 8, to be sound in speech that is beyond reproach. I want you to look at this. Verse 8, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. In other words, if these young men do not live sound lives as God commands, they will bring shame upon themselves and upon Christ's church. It's powerful. Look at verse 9. Bond slaves are to be subject to their own masters and everything. Verse 10. showing This is striking. Well, you ought to look at chapter 2, verse 10. Showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. This is amazing. What Paul is saying here is amazing. It's a fascinating statement. They will adorn the doctrine of God. How do you adorn the doctrine of God? The word here is the Greek word cosmeo. Uh, it means to cause something to have an attractive appearance. Cosmeo. We have... A similar word in English, cosmetics, right? Cosmetics, it's makeup, right? But here, it's to cause this to have an attractive appearance. And I'm not commenting on makeup. Uh, that's not what I'm here to do. But Paul is saying that your life is to be an adornment to the gospel that we love so dearly. That is what your life is to be. It refers to a way of life that recommends Doctrinal teachings. So that people should look at your life, Christian. You. Your life. And say, I want that. What do they have that I don't have? How are they doing this? How is he juggling all of this and, and singing Amazing Grace at the same time? Right? How is he making it through? How is she handling this scenario? How is she doing it? In such a faithful, peaceful way. Your life ought to be an adornment to the doctrine of God. To live in such a way that it commends the gospel to others. This is the same language we find in 1 Peter 3, uh, 1-6, to where the wife of an unbelieving husband, she is told not to adorn herself with external trappings of gold and beauty, but she was to adorn herself 
with character. The goal was that her life would adorn the gospel in such a way that it would authenticate her theology in front of her unbelieving spouse and win him over. That's true. If you have an unbelieving spouse, this is God's design and will for you, that your life would be lived before your unbelieving spouse in such a way that they would see it and think, what is different about her? What is wrong with her? Why is he so crazy? Uh, why is he singing right now? And why is he not overwhelmed and crushed with anxiety about this situation? And that gives you the opportunity to be the missionary you need to be to your unbelieving spouse. It's all about, in one sense here, evangelism. Uh, it, it's, it's the target uh, of our lives to commend the gospel, to adorn the gospel of grace. He's not saying preach the gospel, use words if necessary. That's not what he's saying. Uh, words are necessary. Right? No one's going to know about Christ's death, life, resurrection, ascension for you if you don't tell them with your words. But what he is saying is that they don't, they will not hear in one sense if your life undercuts all the theology you're sharing with them. So don't do that. Now, we come to verse 11. All right, that, sorry, that was all somewhat introduction. Um, now we come to our text. With all of this in mind, we can see what Paul is really doing. All right, he is on a mission. Why should the Christians in Crete live lives that accord with sound theology? Why should we do this, Paul? Grace covers our sin. Let us just live how we want to live, Paul. Paul says, no, no, no. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Since God's saving grace has appeared, bringing salvation and forgiveness for all people, those who have experienced the true saving power of God must live in such a way that affirms that reality. This is evangelistic. This is missionary focused. The grace of God, the saving grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The target is evangelism in verse 11. Rather than live in a way that denies the validity of the gospel for the sake of your neighbors, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ in Graham, Texas, you ought and are to live a godly life. And I will tell you, brother or sister, your life right now is either affirming or denying the gospel of Jesus Christ. What, what's it doing? You're a, you're a member of, Grand, of Redeemer Church. Well, is your life reflecting the gospel? Is your life reflecting the grace of God? Does your life commend the saving power of Jesus Christ? Let me ask you a, a few questions to help you analyze your own faithfulness here. Generally, does my life dishonor the Word of God? Where are the areas in my life that God's Word and His grace might be currently uh, being dishonored? Does every aspect of my life my relationship with my spouse, my children, my boss, my the way that I do my taxes. Does all of this 
reflect the saving grace of God? And does it honor the Word of God? Here's another set of questions. Does my life give ammunition to the enemies of Christ? And I'm not just talking about atheists outside. I'm talking about your children, uh, your teenage children, uh, your young children. Are you giving the enemy opportunity by your inconsistent living? The worst thing you could do for these dear children is live a life, your life hypocritically uh, and neglect them spiritually or physically. That's the worst thing you can do for their soul. Is your life giving the enemy an opportunity in your home? Does my life shut the mouth of those who would criticize Christianity or give credence to the devil? In short, does my life affirm or deny the theology I profess? You alone can answer that question, ultimately. But I will tell you that God has placed you in a church. Right? And there are brothers and sisters all around you that love you. And, and a, a bold, a courageous, brave thing to do would be to ask a dear brother or sister the, those questions. When you look at my life, would you say that my life is commending the grace of God or is it detracting from God's grace? Get input from brothers and sisters. The problem is that we are usually blind uh, to these things in our lives. So seek it out, and may God help us to never be content with dissonance between our theology and our lives. Okay, that's argument number one. Your life must live, you must live your life godly, Christ-like, because your life is constantly affirming or denying God's grace. Second, you must live a godly life because your entire life itself is under the training influence of the grace of God. As a Christian, your entire life is under the training influence of the grace of God. Look at verses 12 to 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, but instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. The main idea here in these few verses is the training or teaching function of God's grace. It's a word, uh, a Greek word, it's where we get the word pedagogy or pedagogy in English. It has to do with teaching or training. We use this word in parenting. It was used in classical Greek to refer to the the training of children. It was used to refer to Moses' training in Egypt. It was also used to refer to Paul's training under Gamaliel. So it's this training uh, school, essentially, that grace has. It, It works, and grace doesn't just sit and settle in your heart, but it's operative. Once you trust in Christ, God's grace... Uh, is continually working in you to do something. And our text shows us what that is. It does two things. It trains us on what to deny in life and what to embrace. 
what to say no to uh, and what to say yes to, what to put off and then what to put on, all right? And we're going to see that as we work through. It says, it trains us, verse 12, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Grace trains us to deny two things, ungodliness and worldly desires. You see that? Ungodliness here needs to be defined. It's simply a lack of reverence for God. Grace trains you to stop that, uh, to live with a constant reverence and fear of God. That's part of grace's uh, work in your life, to train you to live with a constant fear, healthy awe and reverence of God. It can also, though, have the, the nuance of living with regard for God would be godliness. Ungodliness would be living your life with no thought of God. Right, so think about your life. You clock in on Monday. Or you wake up on Monday and the kids are all around you. Whatever it is. Whatever your work is, home or away. Um, what role is God playing in your life? Do you live your day with any regard for God as you function? Jerry Bridges gave a helpful definition of godliness, or ungodliness rather. Ungodliness, he says, may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God, or of God's will, or of God's glory, or of one's dependence upon God. Do you live your life knowing that you need God today, in this moment, in this hour, not just in the morning, not just in the evening, but throughout your day? Grace trains you to deny that kind of living. In other words, grace trains you to stop living like an atheist with no thought of God throughout the day and to start remembering God as you go about your work. That's what grace does, right? Now, let me just say, none of us are doing that perfectly, all right? I'm not doing that perfectly, um, and I know that you're not doing that perfectly, uh, and that's why we need grace, right? Grace helps us to do that and to renounce these things and to change. Grace trains us in this regard. Second, grace trains us to renounce, he says, worldly desires, These are desires or longings or wants that align with the prevailing interests of the world. You have those in your heart, don't you? You see something the world is doing. It seems attractive to you. Um, The thing about our enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil, is that usually there's some landing ground in our heart uh, for these uh, temptations around us. We have worldly desires uh, within us. We have the old man, right? The flesh within us. And and a worldly desire here in a word is an illicit desire. An illicit desire. What I mean by that is a desire for something that God has forbidden. What could that be? Well, it could be a number of things. Uh, It could be uh, a new car. Uh, If you're not faithfully stewarding your finances. Uh, It could be sex. If you're not married, and if that desire is not for your wife, uh, it could be uh, an attraction to the same sex, right? Uh, these are illicit desires that are inbred in fallen humanity. 
And what our culture has done has said those illicit desires are actually more authoritative and more genuinely you than anything else. Those desires that you feel in your heart that everyone around you is saying that's bad, they're all wrong. Right? In the physical world that we see, science, biology, all of that is irrelevant at this point. The only thing that matters is what you sense in your heart. It's subjectivism. I am, in my own heart, the um, arbiter of truth and reality. Right? So if I feel, if I sense this desire for something that God has forbidden, well, I can't be wrong. God must be wrong. Or all of you must be wrong who are telling me that I'm wrong. That is an illicit desire. And the world, just like the Cretan culture, uh, the world around us is pressuring us to say, don't fight those illicit desires. Embrace them. That's who you really are. And you'll find true freedom if you embrace these illicit desires. And friends, that is a lie from the devil. If you do that, you will have a miserable, miserable life and a miserable eternity. If you live that way, grace trains us to deny those impulses. They're there. You feel them. We hate them. Psalm 9710, you who love the Lord hate evil, right? Ephesians 5, we are to take no part in the unfruitful works of the devil. Instead, we are to expose them. And you have in your heart a world of evil. And I have it too. And we feel it rise up. And grace trains us to cut its head off, to hate it, to renounce it, to turn from it. And there are people in this room, if you're, if you're feeling that and you're sensing the battle and you feel like you're losing, friends, we're all in this fight. And there are plenty of people here who love you and would be willing to help you fight against that. Grace trains us to say no to the impulses of our heart. But grace also trains us positively to put on or to embrace. Now look at verse uh, verse 12. We renounce or deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And then he says we embrace or we live sensibly. Living sensibly. This is the first thing we want that grace trains us to embrace. It's just fascinating. Uh, it, it means... Literally, it's like self-control is the word. I don't know what the ESV says, but NASB says sensibly. Uh, It could say self-controlled. The word literally has to do with a sound mind. This is what grace trains us to do. It works on our minds. Right. This is where the battle usually is fought, between your ears, as we're fighting sin and the impulses of our own heart. And grace comes to us, and what it does is it teaches us to curb our desires and impulses so as to produce a measured and orderly life. That's what it does. It's self-control. It teaches you not to embrace the impulses of your heart, but to control them, to fight them, and to be led by truth, not by your emotions, not by your senses, not by your impulses, not by your instinct, not like a wild, evil beast, right? but to live as a being created in God's image. All right, so self-control. The first thing grace does is it works on us inwardly, who we are. And notice this, it's really interesting. This is the first step, who you are. Second step, grace trains the believer to live righteously. That refers to horizontal living. You see that in the text, to live righteously. It's living with a character that aligns with God's standards, 
not my own. Right? Anywhere where my standards are different than God's, I have to change. Right? I have to embrace His standards. Grace trains me to do that. Uh, so that I live righteously, conformed to God's ways. And that generally is directed towards other people. Right? God's commandments can be summarized in two. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. Right? That's horizontal living, vertically in one sense and horizontal. Grace trains you to think of others and live for others. Third, grace trains us to live, he says, godly, the last of verse 12, godly in the present age. To live godly in the present age. This speaks to our the vertical orientation of our life. Godly. It's holiness, but it's really the opposite of ungodliness. Right? If ungodliness is a life where I don't think about God, only on Sundays and Wednesdays or small group, godliness is where my life is constantly permeated. My mind, rather, is constantly permeated with God's ways. I'm always thinking, what does God want here? How can I honor God here? How can I do things God's way? I live with a constant awareness of my dependence upon God. Do you live that way? Do you live that way? When finances are, are not coming in, when things are not going the way you want them to go, uh, where do you turn? Grace trains you, brother or sister, to turn to God and flee to Him. Fourth, grace trains us to live a life of hope. A life of hope. Look at verse 13. It says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. In verse 11, we saw that the grace of God had appeared. That's talking about Christ's first advent. Now verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior is, is speaking to the second coming of Christ. Christians, by grace, which is operative in us, training us, Christians live with our eyes fixed to the clouds in that respect. We're always looking for Christ's coming. And we're always hoping in that return. We, we don't like those in 2 Peter 3 say, Ugh, it's been forever since he said he was going to come back. No, we say, if God destroyed the earth before in the flood, and if he's promised to judge the world again, and if he's promised to come again, what sort of people ought we to be in godly living? Because the king is coming. The king is coming. I noticed your crown. Uh, this is the theme. You live, we live with the crown in view. We know he's coming. And one day, Christian, you and I will give full accounting for what we have done for the king. Grace does two things. It trains you so that you will not be ashamed on that day and you will have some reward. But it also helps you to not cower in fear at him because you understand that the gospel is the only hope you have on that day. You could never trust in your godliness for acceptance before the king. Your godliness is always tainted, Isaiah 46, is always tainted with some polluted um, rag, right? 
You can never trust in yourself to get access to the king. But grace trains us not to fear the king's coming. There will be those. When Jesus returns, we know. There will be those cowering, hiding under rocks, praying the rocks to fall on them. Why? Because they are afraid. Grace trains us to throw off the rocks and run to the field where we can get a better view of our Lord. Right? That's what grace does. Grace acquaints us with the fatherly disposition of God. Where we see Him not as a evil, wicked judge who suppresses us and our, suppresses our desires. No. We see Him as a loving Father who gave His only Son so that you and I could be forgiven and spend an eternity with Him and always sing of the undeserving nature of His grace and love to us. That's what grace does. So that's why Paul says, we look to Him. We're always looking towards that blessed hope. That's the happy hope. Right? This is not our heaven. This is not it for you, Christian. So don't live like it is. Don't live as if this is your heaven. It's not. Store up your treasure in heaven. Sell your goods, uh, as the Lord says. Um, Get you know, store it up here so that we're we're in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. Get money bags that will not deteriorate. Right? Live as if everything for you is coming. Right? You don't have to acquire now. You know that? You don't have to. You can live like our Lord lived. Now, of course, you have responsibilities. Right? I'm not telling you to not take care of your family. But you can live like our Lord lived. Anxiety-free. Why? Because the Lord has promised to take care of you. Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's to you. Are you not of much more value than the sparrow who neither sows nor reaps? Do you believe that? That's the Christian's promise. Grace trains us to believe that more and more so that our lives are constantly formed or constantly marked, rather, by self-sacrifice and stored up treasure in heaven, not trying to have everything now. That's what grace does. We're running out of time, so let me jump to the third thing that grace does. The third thing that grace does... Actually, that's not what I'm trying to say. Sorry. The third argument, rather, that Paul gives for why Christians must live a godly life is this. Because your life does not belong to you. Your life is not your own. It's not yours. Look at verse 14. He says, Who, that's Jesus, of course, gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, if you read that and come away thinking you can have your best life now and that this is all about you, uh, you you need help. And we're here to help you. We can help you with that. But this is clearly, uh, this passage teaches so clearly that your experience of grace is not about you. And I'm going to, let me show you that. Three things he says. First, Jesus gave himself for us. 
He gave himself for us. That's the gospel in a nutshell. He took the cross for you. You deserve, because of your sin, this is grace, you deserve hell, and the punishment that all of your sin deserves is hell. You deserve that. And on the cross, Jesus takes that for you. That's grace. And he he merits it, his righteousness to your account, by faith. You believe him, you trust in what Jesus has done for you, and you are forgiven of all your sins. You know those sins you're thinking about. You know them. And you think, these people don't know my sins. They don't know who I am. They don't know how terrible I am. They don't know what I've done. Well, uh, that's true. We don't know. But the Lord God knows, and he also knows what I've done. And he knows what every one of us have done. And we all deserve his wrath. But because of his love, he's made a way for us to be forgiven. And that's grace. That's why we're here. That's why we love to come to church and sing about Christ. The gospel is, he gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. And notice why. Look at verse 14. He gave himself to do two things. First, to redeem us from every lawless deed. To redeem us. That's buying us. To buy us. To redeem us from every lawless deed. And two, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for Great theology. No. Of course, we're zealous for great theology. Don't get that. I love, we love theology. We love knowing God. But the point here is that grace compels you to live a godly life. And this is what Paul is saying to these <laughs> lousy living Cretans. Get it together. Grace is training you. It's working in you. Jesus is coming back and you're not your own to go live how you want to live. Grace is at work. Jesus paid gave his life for you so that you would faithfully live for him. The entire purpose of your redemption is summed up in verse 14. Jesus gave himself so that he would have a people who would no longer be characterized by lawless living, but by holiness and zeal for good works. You hear it sometimes, I don't know why God saved me. Well, Paul does. Scripture tells you why. So that you would be zealous for good works. So that your life would be a living affirmation of the saving grace of God. And so that you would give your life to Him. It's already His. But so that your life would be lived in praise to God. It's the same language here that's used of Israel in the Old Testament. That King James talks about being a peculiar people. This is a people of God's own possession. Jesus redeemed you. Just like God went into Israel, redeemed the Israelites from Egyptian bondage, which is the the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament, the same language is used here. You, Christian, have been redeemed, right? By a far greater act miracle than ten plagues. That was wonderful. The culmination of all of God's redemptive activity is in Christ. And He gave Himself for you so that you would live godly, faithful in the present. Friends, our redemption and our experience of grace is designed to compel us to live for God. All right, let me summarize all this in conclusion. So, why must you live a godly life? Why? Why not just leave here and go live how you want to live? Well, 
First, your life must be, Christian, an affirmation of God's saving grace. So I exhort you to analyze that this week, today. Where do you stand? Second, you must live godly because your life is under the training influence of God's grace. You don't go to God's school of grace and come out the same. It doesn't happen that way. You are changed. And if you're not changed, it's indicative that you are not Christ's. Third, you must live godly because your life is not your own. It belongs to Jesus Christ. Do you know that? It's not yours to live. You've been purchased by the king to be his servant. And friends, all the joy that you will ever have in this life, all the blessings that you will ever have in this life, will only be amplified if you die to yourself and live for him. And for eternity, experience even greater glory, greater joy, greater happiness than than anything you could ever experience here. We await our king. We're all waiting for him. We We all are, I think, I hope you are. We will see him soon. And when you stand before him, you want to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what he's after. We want to love him. And we want to live for him. And may the Lord help us do both. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for grace that's operative in our lives. That changes us from the inside out. That shows us what to denounce. How to live. And reminds us that when your son returns. That it will be a day of blessed joy for us. Not a fearful day. Not a day where we flee from Him, but where we run to Him. Because we have come to know that in Him is life and our pardon for sin. And Lord, we pray that You would help each one of us to live faithfully today and to grow increasingly in the way that our theology and our life become one. And we shine as lights and we function as salt in this world. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.